Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, people, uh, I had a party this Sunday. The lovely Joanne's in town, and uh, her birthday was Monday, and uh, the party was Sunday night. And I noticed one thing. It's really good when, you're, when your friends are older and they have jobs where they make money because I have so much beer left at my place. Now, years ago, if I had a party, it'd be all like crappy beer. It'd be like old Milwaukee and stuff like that. But I have microbrews, Dale's Pale Ales. We had one guy brought a bottle, a 1.75 liter bottle of Kettle One and then brought me a bottle of Patron for the hell of it. But I noticed the weirdest thing was it was great. And uh, then the weirdest thing is we make food. Now, Joanne makes the meatballs. She makes amazing meatballs. She's Italian from New York. It's, that's, that's their birthright. But we sat there and I got this great shrimp cocktail. And now shrimp cocktail is good stuff and it's a hot day. And I swear to God, no one ate it. And finally later tonight, I guess <laughs> when people were drunk, we put out mini corn dogs. They were gone in three minutes. It was unbelievable. So it just doesn't make a difference. We'll all eat crap when we get drunk. Anyway, enough about that. I have a great guest today. Uh, actually, uh, he's on a very funny show, which actually we went to a taping of. And I have a Sullivan and Son t-shirt. And Joanne has the script from that show. And he's also a very, very... Uh, Accomplished comic. He's done Letterman. He's done Craig Ferguson. He's done Conan. And he's a very funny guy. We have Roy Wood Jr. Ahoy. How you doing? I got to ask you something. Now, you're, you're from Alabama. Are you are you a big, like, are you, are you a big, who's your college football team? I know you went to Florida A&M, but are you like an uh, Auburn or uh, Yeah, University? there's not a lot of diehard black college football fans running around. Oh, Florida A&M will beat your team. No, they won't. Love my school. Uh, I grew up selling sodas at Alabama games. Okay. So, I'm a casual Bama fan, but you know I say that very, very lazily because I don't want to get lumped into the diehard fanatics who fight you and key your car and like, like there's like Roll Tide is literally and it's it, they do it as they say it as a joke, but it's literally a greeting, and it, you can start a conversation, you can end a conversation, you can show any emotion you want with the two words roll tide in Alabama and people understand what you mean it is literally a separate language well it's funny you say that because I put a picture up on Facebook of me and Joanne and uh, at the party and I know a guy who I grew up in New Jersey near, near Philly but he went to Alabama and he did it he wrote great picture roll tide and I'm like dude we're from New Jersey. I know you yeah. went to school in Alabama, but, but it was like a common thing I'm like, I'm like get it yeah. so, so, uh, so are you a big sports fan oh yeah I'm a huge sports fan I, it's like, I like I'm pro Here's why I can't be against Alabama and Auburn football. Anything that makes my home state not look like a bunch of cousin-banging idiots <laughs> and it makes us seem civilized, you know what? Okay, fine. I have to support that. So, you know, if they're on TV, I root rah, 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 but I don't own any shirts or hats, and I couldn't name more than five players on Alabama's team at any given time. Are you a pro fan? Yeah, Cubs Dolphins. Cubs okay. Dolphins is what I'll start a bar fight over. Now the Dolphins, Anything? they they uh they're looking pretty good. What do you think of Tannehill? Don't lie, don't lie. They said they're gonna be good this year. Poop. I'm an Eagles fan. I, I felt pain forever. Oh, you guys are gonna be good though. After that N bomb incident with the white with the white boy whose saying the N word, whose last name is Cooper. Yeah, which was, didn't make it great for me. Your cousin. Hey, this guy. <laughs> Here's the thing. If we didn't learn anything else from watching Remember the Titans with Denzel Washington, racism brings football teams together. And that's what you need. You need a good racist player 
who can get the get the black players on his side and they <laughs> come to his defense and what side? Strong side and they start winning games. You mark my words, Eagles fourteen and two. I think they're gonna have a good year. Now so let's uh, let's get to your career. When you were little growing up in Alabama, did you ever think you wanted to do comedy? Was comedy prevalent around your house? Was there any uh, influences you had as a small child or as you got a little bit older to gear you no. no, 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 no. I was an only child. I have a lot of heifer. I was the only child by my mom. So I grew up alone. So I was in my head a lot. I lived in my head, you know, Lego men, G.I. Joe's. That was like the, the theater of the mind, like full blown movies that took a week and a half to complete right. G.I. Joe versus Lego Wars. <laughs> uh, my father was, he used to be a college professor, and then he transitioned back into journalism. So, you know, he did a lot of news radio and a lot of political commentary. So my dad was very was very upright. You know, um, I'm trying to think of anybody I could even compare it to. Like, think of Tavis Smiley, but less of a jerk. Okay. You know, <laughs> like, like that. Um, and my mom was a college professor, and, you know, we're talking – both of them two or three two to three degrees apiece you know so it wasn't a funny house okay you know people were very serious or whatever and i was just a crazy one i was the one lighting fireworks in the house shooting squirrels with bb guns just it's just alabama you're okay. bored you got a bb gun and a firecracker <laughs> <laughs> we used to do that now we used to go shooting bb guns and we always got pissed because squirrels they had like the roughest toughest skin like they'd be on your tree and squirrels just eat my mom had a little corn my mom could never garden like she had everything would die except the corn mm -hmm. and these squirrels would always eat the damn corn and you go out there with it my brother had the bb gun and you do five pumps and you're yeah. sitting there and you hit the things and they're like giving you the finger they don't even move it's like they had the toughest skin 20 pumps coop <laughs> you gotta go 20 pumps if you want the kill shot and you can add some windage you gotta compensate for crosswind but that's a conversation for another day I, you know i was I was funny in school, but I was never a class clown. I was like one of those kids blinking, you miss it, and I do something silly kind of guy. And, you know, I don't think I came out of my shell until I went to college. You know, I always had inklings of wanting to do stand-up. Like I used to make, you know, video recordings of myself making like what would have been essentially today a radio sketch. Okay. Uh, you know, and I was doing this sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, I drew my own comic book and comic, well, comic strip, rather. Because I used to like Calvin and Hobbes, and I always wanted, you know, something like that. So I was in a drawing at the time. So, you know, there was the creative side was there, but I never really honed it. it the, the thought of stand-up didn't even come about until Comedy Central signed on. So when Comedy Central signed on in the 90s, and I'd seen a little bit of Sinbad and a little bit of um, some Red Fox albums that my parents had, I was like, all right, that's cool. I, I could that's interesting and I became obsessed with stand up like just literally just buried myself in it but never had the guts to do it okay. until I got to college well now so you go to college and now I'm sure since your parents were both professors college is pretty much there wasn't an option you were going to college I'm guessing I mean oh, absolutely yeah. so uh, college or get out how did you pick up Florida a &M? Uh the baseball team sucked okay dead serious literally that's uh, like my parents were you know they're you know not militant, but they were definitely, you know, big on the black experience. So they really wanted me to go to a historically black university. So I narrowed it down. The first thing I didn't want to do, most of the black colleges in the South, everybody that I went to high school with was going to. And I didn't want to be around anybody from high school. And it's not that I hated those people. I just wanted a change of scenery. I just right. wanted 
I just wanted something different. So I had it narrowed down to Clark, Atlanta, Tennessee State, and Florida A&M. And I looked at their baseball records. Tennessee State didn't have a team. Clark, Atlanta, the team was okay, but Florida State's team was terrible. I go, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to walk on. I'm going to play baseball, and I'm going to be a Chicago Cub. Now, did you make literally, the literally? That was that was the plan. Like I didn't visit the university. I didn't look at a brochure. My mom went to Florida A and M. My father used to be a professor there, so I'm sure someone there will have my back. But I'm also far enough away from home to where my parents aren't over my shoulder, and I'm going to make the baseball team. And I'm going to pull me a badass chick, and I'm going to play for the Cubs. <laughs> and this will be sweet. Now, did you make the team? No, I got cut <laughs> in 30 minutes. <laughs> Were they? I mean, you know, it's funny. Were they, were they good or just it was? I mean, was it? Would they have a lot of skill or you just they didn't like walk ons or what happened? Uh, it was a little bit of all of that. Like you know, this is here's the thing. Like college baseball, try like you know, in high school you try out for a sport. It's a couple of days, and the coaches are evaluating a different skill set every day, and then at the end of the week, the roster is posted, and if your name is on the congratulations. Uh, college baseball at Florida A and M, the tryouts were literally. Uh, I'd say 90 minutes, and they cut people every 30 minutes. Really? Every 30 minutes, if your number wasn't called, you didn't continue to the next set of drills. It's just you suck so bad at that, we don't even <laughs> want to see what else you have to offer. And that's pretty much what happened to me. Like I was just hitting and running, which are the two things I suck at the most. Why couldn't we start with fielding? Right. What position were you? I was a first baseman, but I couldn't hit for power. And, you know, you're in college, and I'm a big boy. I'm 6'2", 250. But I just I, power wasn't my thing. I mean, come on, man! I played city league baseball in an all black school district. Nobody stressed baseball, so you never get the skill set. And you get to college, and you start seeing these big country white boys who've been playing summer ball their whole life while you were busy working at Baskin Robbins to help mom pay the bills or selling sodas at Bama games. Them boys was in the cages. Them boys was in the weight room doing what they were supposed to do to get better. And then there was these things I never heard of called Cubans. <laughs> Especially in Florida. Yeah, dude, I never, this sounds racist, but it's literally what the South was in 1996. When I graduated high school, there were no Cubans in Birmingham. I hadn't seen them on TV. I saw Scarface. That was, yeah, pretty interesting show. <laughs> nice movie. But I got to um, Florida, and basically most Division two colleges, they're damn good baseball players. And baseball isn't like football where there's a drop-off in talent from first to second tier in schools. It's just a lot of guys don't get playing time because there's only nine positions. Whereas in football, you know, you've got way more. And, like, in basketball, you can pool more together. But, like, in baseball – it was a lot of junior college transfers, a lot of JUCOs, and uh, a lot of Division One guys who were damn good and were going to get drafted and did get drafted who just weren't getting the playing time they needed at Division One. Baseball is just all about getting the stats. They don't really stress whether or not you – there's no such thing as a power conference in baseball. There's good schools. There's good teams. But you can flourish on, on Chuckabuck State right. A&M. If you well, hit 40 homers for Chuckabuck State, trust me – the scouts will find you and you will get drafted. Well, it did. Also, I know some guys who played football in high school who were good athletes and they would get drafted. I mean, not 
up high, but they would never go yeah, to the league. But they, the teams would draft them because they said, you know what, this kid's got athletic talent. We're going to put him in there. But it's like with baseball, they won't question it. It's, they don't question the numbers in baseball. So you can put up numbers anywhere and have a fair chance. If you if you ran for 90 touchdowns at Chuckabuck State, they would instantly right. question whether or not, well, he's in a weak conference and those 90 touchdowns, he would have only gotten 30 if he was in the SEC. They don't do that in baseball. A home run is a home run. The pitch was 90 miles an hour. You hit it 450 right. feet. So you, so you get cut from the team. So now how does that affect – are you sitting there glad you're still at Florida A&M? Or, and how does that parlay you starting doing comedy in college? The walk home from the baseball field was literally the first time I had any real thoughts about my future and what I was going to do with my life. Because you knew we weren't, we weren't going to be a cub anymore. Literally. I okay. was like, all right, baseball isn't going to happen. Now what was your major? Oh dear, what am I gonna do? I just I just majored in business just because they took me. So my degree is in business. Management. Yeah, my degree was in business, and you know, at, at the time I wanted to major in journalism, but I had to see in English out of high school, so the journalism department wouldn't accept me. So I had to get my English grades up. So my mom wouldn't let me be a general studies major. So I took business, and the business department at Florida A and M is prestigious. Like they, um. School of Business and Industry there, I know I'm going to butcher this statistic, but I think they pipeline more minorities to Fortune 500 companies than any other college in the country. If not, they're top three. Like, you could walk out of there with a five-year MBA and walk right off of your graduations, right out of your cap and gown into a six-figure job. Okay. And what I wanted to do, I wanted to do journalism, though, man. Like, I, I, I saw Stuart Scott... Uh, the two people that changed it for me in college, because, um, you know, coming out of college, I was like, well, if I don't play baseball, I'll be a firefighter. And then Stuart Scott was like the first black person I saw on ESPN that spoke like me, that talked like me, that, you know, he was hip, but he was right. still professional. And I was like, wow, that's funny. That's engaging. What do I need to do to do that? Journalism? Okay, I'm going to do that. And so when I got to college and didn't get accepted in the journalism department, I was just passing, you know, just screwing around in the business department. And I made the decision to change my major. So I left the baseball field, and I think the next day I went to my academic advisor, and I go, you know, what do I need to do to get in journalism? He goes, just get a B in English. So that's that was the first gear shift. Comedy didn't comedy as a career, and that thought that didn't come for probably another two years. But you were still in college. Yeah, I was still in college. Yeah, I didn't drop out. I mean, I was. I mean, granted, I was a screw up. I mean, I chased panties and drank liquor, and you know, yeah. that's college. Come on, that's that's like a given. That's like a minor. Paid homeless people to, <laughs> to buy. We <laughs> we got cussed out by this homeless dude. We got. I'm sorry for drinking. That's fine. Thoughts drying out. We got cursed out by this homeless dude on Tennessee Street in Tallahassee because at the time, like, we were. <laughs> so Jay Z has it all starts with Jay Z, who was like the influencer of pop culture and all that. Jay Z had this song, and there was a, there was a line in the song. Uh, the song is called Can I Get a. And there's this chick on the song named Emil. And the line in the song goes, I like a lot of Prada. Alize and vodka. So we knew what Alize was, and we knew what vodka was. We'd had that. That's pretty good liquor. But what's this Prada? <laughs> if 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 I give you three things in a sentence, and two of them are alcohol, and you don't know what the third thing is, the assumption is that the third thing is liquor as well. Right. So forty dollars in hand, we go down to the mission. 
And we get a homeless dude to meet us three blocks up the road at the Jack's liquor store. We put $40 in his hand. We go, yo, just bring us out as much Prada as this can buy. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, what? Said Prada. You know, it's like Alizé and Vodka for Prada. (laughs) He goes, I ain't never heard of that. Which, at that point, we should have knew something was up. Because this is a professional wino. And, you know, most homeless people, they they know all their liquors. They know their their whites, their darks, their merlots. They know what's going on. And we sent that dude in the store, and he stayed in the store for 30 minutes. <laughs> and we're across the street at Krispy Kreme, so we got You're an eyeline. You're all excited. Yeah. Like, come on, man. Krispy Kreme was the perfect eyeline into the store. So we would sit at Krispy Kreme and eat donuts. And we're looking at the store like, what the hell is taking this dude so long? I used to, it's so funny. I remember giving people uh, money for alcohol. Came out and cussed us out. See, it's, it, that's the thing. I remember we gave some guy money one time. We were going to a party. We wanted to be all cool. So we wanted to get like a case of Bud. And we just, yeah, get something to drink. The guy came out with like a case of Zima. And we looked like, to- <laughs> we looked like total dicks going to a party with Zima. <laughs> so you're in college. When do you first get on stage? And how did you, how did you come up to getting on stage? Because you, you said, you, no, did you get into the journalism school? Yeah, I got into journalism, okay. and, you know, everything was working. I mean, mediocre grades, uh, you know, low Cs. You know, I think I had like a 2.5, you know, 2.4, 2.5. You know, I was doing so much. I was doing so much dirt, though, man. Like, me and my buddies, we had like a little thing going where we were like shoplifting clothes and selling the clothes on campus. So I got arrested for that my junior year, right? So I get arrested. And I think I'm going to prison. Like, literally, that is the only thought that consumes my existence is I'm going to go to prison. And this is 98, so the show Oz is right. really popular on HBO. And that's <laughs> the only vision I have of prison is this big African dude with no shirt on named Adebisi just <laughs> grabbing me and just straight whispering Nigerian sweet nothings in my ear. Will you like that? I give it to you. No, no. I'm at a BC, you will give me the booty. So, so I, I get arrested. I figure I'm going to go to jail. So I fall into a bit, I fall into a deep depression. And and I'm 19. I'm 19 at the time. And I decide, all right, if I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to do everything I ever wanted to do in life before I go to jail. Now, granted, you're 19, so you don't have a long list. Right. I figure, you know what, we'll see what that parasailing is and jet skiing. Finding out, yeah. what, finding out what Prada is. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Have a nice sip of Prada. <laughs> so that's that's uh, Thanksgiving of 98 is when I get popped. So I finish out that semester. Uh, the beginning of January, I get suspended from school for the year for for the crime and everything for violating code of conduct okay. and all that stuff so I'm suspended then like a day later my attorney tells me yeah you'll probably go to jail for some of this stuff because it, it mixed in all of that was like mail theft and like stealing the credit cards that we use to buy some of the stuff sometimes so it, the, ch- the charges are irrelevant it just boiled the charges are irrelevant it just boiled down to my attorney telling me you're screwed you have six months so figure it all out so depression starts and i get a i get a check in the mail like a week and a half later i get a check in the mail for like eight thousand dollars which was supposed to have gone to pay for my classes 
for spring semester. And the suspension paperwork, like, that takes weeks to right. get through the pipeline. So I had all my money for my classes that I knew I wasn't going to have to take. So I took the check. I went, cashed the check, and I deposited the check. I go, you know, I'm going to try comedy. I've always wanted to do it. I wanted to do comedy since high school, but just fear. It, it took me so long to get accepted socially or feel socially accepted in Birmingham that by the time I got to high school and really felt like I fed, fit in, I wasn't I wasn't the cool kid, but I wasn't the one getting picked on. And right. that was good enough for me. So once I got to that spot, I wasn't going to blow that up by trying to tell jokes like Eddie Murphy did on Comedy Central and those SNL marathons. So... So I just never tried it. But once I figured, well, you know, F it. I'm going to prison. All right, let's try comedy. So got a Greyhound ticket. I go to Birmingham, and I start throwing jokes. And it's funny. It was all pretty funny. And, and it wasn't hilarious, but it was good enough. It was good enough to keep me wanting to do it again. And that's how I spent the next six months until sentencing, just bouncing around the South doing shows on a Greyhound. Now, were you getting booked, or was it just you were going to get showcases? Oh, this or? is just open mics. Okay, so you open mics, show up and go up. Yeah, you know, in the South, it's not as stringent. Well, in those days, Atlanta's different now, but, you know, 98, 99, you could pretty much call a club and go, yeah, I want to sign up for open mic next Tuesday. Okay, you're down. Just show up. And you go down to St. Pete to Coconuts right out on the water, uh, St. Petersburg or whatever, and you go up, you do three minutes, but it was thrilling, and and I remember though I remember that time being the only time I was happy. Like was when I was on stage. I had a um, had a twenty hour a week job at Golden Corral, and mind you, all my friends they got arrested too. So I have no friends anymore. Okay. Nobody's talking to me because I'm the dirt of the earth. Who you got me in all this trouble? Their moms coming over to the apartment finger wagging and treating you like you're the devil when their son was right there with you, but. So that's how I spent most of my time, was just doing stand-up and time not doing stand-up. And I was only doing maybe two shows a month, but that was a lot for right. me. And, you know, because it's not New York. You, yeah, you so don't when have I, five places. When each. I started out, yeah, in Philadelphia where there was open mics and there was three different places. So you always could get every week yeah. get on. In the South, literally, it's one open mic per month per city. St. Peter and Tampa had two a month. Well, you could go to Tampa the second week of the month, and you could go to St. Petersburg the third week of the month. So if you want to count that market as one city, all right, then you had two open mic opportunities there. But Jacksonville was just every blue, blue moon. Orlando, Tallahassee was a ghost town, man. Like we, um, I got with some guys who started a comedy troupe there um, over that summer. There was a, a weekend room there, the Comedy Zone. And I met one of the MCs, and it turns out the MC, this guy, Mike Shader, who to this day I still owe a lot to. Um, Mike Shader had formed this local comedy troupe, troupe called the Comedy Collage, and it was just a bunch of, just a bunch of comics from North Florida who were just all looking for stage time. And so Shader kind of went around and just created rooms, like he just, you know, he was the guy. He was the guy going into these crappy bars on their Monday nights and convincing them comedies are better sell than karaoke and getting them to give us the room for 50 bucks and all of us go promote it like hell and you know this is 99 man there's no there's no internet 
right, what yeah. it is now. Internet was literally just email and scan a picture. Yeah. Like that that's all it was. So I mean we were putting up flyers and really banging on doors, but it created stage time. It gave me purpose. It gave me something to look forward to every day. And I think ultimately that's what I that's what I need. I think that's what we all need as human beings. I think that's when like I almost think that that's why like when they say like when people retire they die like old people and stuff because like if you're not waking up with purpose then if there's something not motivating you then it can it's boring yeah it can get real bleak real fast so the comedy kept me occupied and a lot of the material that I had and that I was doing then was stuff that I've been writing since my freshman year I just never had the guts to do so I had I had droves of material. I used to just sit in class. Like classes that I knew I was flunking, I would sit there and just write jokes and make it look like I was taking notes. I would look up quizzically at the professor. and mm, That's an interesting. Good point. So anyway, seven up, if you take one of the sevens away, is six up, which if you split eat, like just writing stupid right. jokes. But in my head, to the professor, I'm sure it looked like I was paying attention, man. <laughs> There's so many ways you can do it. It's like it was like the old falling asleep. You know, you'd always I'd fall asleep at, uh, fall asleep in economics, <laughs> and you sit there and you would feel it, and you'd be sitting in a class, and you're feeling, it, and you're going, okay, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay awake, and then you feel like three seconds later, you'd always be like quick head up, bob, and you're you'd be behind, you're looking, people are looking at you, and it always happened, and you know the professors knew because they're teaching economics, and no one gives. I mean, economics is the most boring subject around. Uh. Dude, I used to snore slob on the table. <laughs> like, I'd wake up, the whole side of my face covered in my own slob because my mouth was open the entire time. So so you're doing the micros. Now, now what happened with the with the, the jail? So, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm doing stand-up all summer from January to Because you're getting, because you, you, it's on your bucket list, and you're figuring, I'm going to go to jail, I want to get this stuff done. It became my only obsession, though. Okay. Like, once I started doing stand-up, that literally became the obsession was doing a, doing a set, recording it, Going back, watching the three minutes, seeing what I could change, what I could do differently, what I didn't like about my performance. And, you know, because at that point, George Carlin, Martin Lawrence, and Chris Rock were the three bigwigs that I had under the microscope who I was really studying and looking at. And it's it's horrible to say now. It's horrible. It's even worse to watch. Like, a good part of the first year of my comedy it's just me doing my material as martin lawrence like you know how you start emulating the That's, people you study we all do that like like when i was doing comedy back in philly like it was when dennis miller was big so a lot of you caught yourself trying to do that hip you know reference stuff and it's not yeah. you but you watch it and you admire it so you're sitting there going and you don't think you don't think you're like taking their act it just, yeah it's, it, it's not it's siphons in your head yeah it's not and it's not like i was trying to become martin right. lawrence it was just you until you figure it out it's, it's like a baby watching an adult do something they don't know what they're doing but that's what you're doing so right. i'm trying to figure out how to do it too um so i get so i i go i go i go to court and i get probation and i say to the judge and he goes um because i've taken i've taken the plea because the, the i was dead in the water so the, there was no way i was gonna you know like he's the lawyer goes you're facing five years he says you're facing five years You'll probably get three, good behavior, a year and a half, overcrowding, probably a year. So you should be back out in a year to a year and a half. That's what I would expect to expect to happen today. And 
And I'm like, do I report today? And he goes, uh, maybe they may just give you a week or two to get your get your crap together. But like, I had my apartment was already packed, boxed. Like everything was just was just all set. Yeah, this is here I am. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to jail. And I go down there, and the dude gives me probation. And that must have been awesome. And my eyes light up, and I'm trying not to show too much emotion because you still have to be contrite or whatever. And the judge goes, um, I sentence you to, you're sentenced to five years probation and monitoring, and you are, you are banned from Tallahassee Mall. And, do you have anything to say, Mr. Wood? And I go, does this mean I can still do comedy? It's <laughs> <laughs> probably like, what the hell? Oh, because, dude, I came in there with the, because you, you get, this is what people don't know about the, the justice system. Like, if you, if you cop a plea, you get to build a file for yourself to give to the prosecutor. It's basically a, here's why I shouldn't go to jail file and you know you can get references from you know people in your life and write a couple letters you know I hit up my high school baseball coach I you know I gave him I gave my attorney you know five or six names I don't know I guess I'm not allowed to know okay which ones wrote letters or didn't write letters or whatever I guess that's to keep it if you go to jail and you go murder them for not writing a good enough letter or whatever um, he sucked. Yeah, yeah well, he's okay. a jerk. Send him to jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The letter could go either way. That's the right. dice roll. Is that you put somebody's name down? You're hoping you put somebody down that did that did right by you, or that you did right by. Um, so I, I forget the point I was making. But no, you said when you so you asked the judge if you could still do comedy. Yeah, that was literally the only thing on my mind. It was and, like, whoa, I can still do. It wasn't freedom. It wasn't. I can go to college, and and that was all part of it. You must stay in school, and you know, because I was already gainfully employed. Most of my employers had nothing but good things to say about me. So you know, I, I wasn't a bad kid. I just wanted to dress nice. Right. I wasn't robbing people. I wasn't pulling kick doors. And granted, we can make the whole argument of white collar versus blue collar crime and all of that stuff. But ultimately, for what was going on in the underbelly of that city, I was small potatoes, and you caught me, and I was scared half to death so I wasn't going to do it again so I run out of the courtroom I literally <laughs> I literally ran out of the court it's like this end of ending scene of any movie where some guy's just running right really happy into the arms <laughs> of some chick that he saved or whatever like that was me like the slow motion Michael Bay Jerry <laughs> Bruckheimer transformer shot right <laughs> out the courtroom just, like <laughs> with the one bead of sweat drizzling right. down my face Megan Fox in tow um I ran home and I emailed this booker and I told him that I could do a gig that Saturday because I told him I wasn't sure whether or not I'd be open. <laughs> Didn't much sure of my avails. I might not be. Yeah. I'm booked for a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so that, and you got to keep in mind, I'm still living off the $8,000. And I still had two roommates who I couldn't talk to. So hilarious. But my expenses every month total were $450. Rent, you know, bus fare and my share of the cable bill. I got $8,000. And I'm still making money at Golden Corral. 
So I lived off of that money and what that money gave me an opportunity to do. And this is where I feel like, you know, I got a really lucky break um, versus what a lot of comics have to deal with starting out. I had no family. Yeah, I had no wife. I had no kids. I had no obligations to school. So I could go wherever I wanted to go. And all I had to do was give my probation officer the hotel address. Okay. That's it. So, and that's that's unheard of even now in terms of how lenient the state of Florida was with regards to giving me travel travel permits to go do comedy because you have to be able to verify your employment and verify where you're going. But how the hell do you verify um, an open mic right. on a Thursday in Salisbury, North Carolina? Yeah, it's, yeah you can't. It's it's not. It's like Trust me, I'm on the list. I called right. the guy. <laughs> And how's that going to look with the guy who's booking you? Listen, I really want to come to your open mic. Would you mind talking to my probation officer <laughs> That's like and great. telling him I'm coming to do three minutes? So, and, which is kind of embarrassing. And, you know, I never had to make that call, thankfully. But <laughs> it could get weird, right? Oh yeah. So, so you're you're hitting the open mics. Now, when do you start getting work? Because I mean, you know, you, and I mean, what year? I mean, how long did you hit the open mics for? I mean, and. I was getting money by the end of that year. Okay. By the end of 99, I mean, I was emceeing um, a couple of places. You know, you're getting like 200 a week. Like, you could go work. Like, there was a great city, um, Columbia, South Carolina. The room's still there, the um, Comedy House Theater. And back in those days, they would book MCs for two weeks straight to lower the stress of travel. You're only getting 250 for the week. So I could take a Greyhound to Columbia and stay there the entire week and... It was a six-night room, so you had Mondays off. And I would I was in Columbia for two weeks at a time every other month. So that was a solid gig as an MC. Like, they don't pay MCs anymore. They no. use locals. They use um, – they do two-man shows, and the feature kind of doubles as an MC. They do that sometimes. So, you know, I got really lucky to come up in an era where – it was the last little bit of MC money that was left in the industry. And like I would work daily, work daily pay during the day. Like I do day labor. I'd go stand out in front with the Mexicans or whatever and hop on a truck, go do whatever I had to do for the day, get, you know, 40 bucks, get back to the hotel, get cleaned up in time for the show that night. And that was enough to just, you know, to, to make ends meet and, you know, to keep me on stage but I mean, I wasn't making great money, right. but I was getting paid, and that yeah, yeah. was enough. And you couple that with back in Tallahassee. At this point, by the end of the year in Tallahassee, I was in the rotation for House MC at the uh, Comedy Zone. So I was getting, I was working Friday, Saturday, four shows, you know, two Friday, two Saturday, every three weeks. I think was my rotation at the time. So I was getting work there, and then you know how it goes. Like when you start doing well. In one market, like especially with the Comedy Zone, which at the time, probably still now, was one of the biggest road work bookers oh, yeah. in the South. They don't book a lot of A-room improv, funny bone stuff. But if you're a comic still playing double-A, triple-A ball, you got to see them if you want to make money in the South. Like You just, you can't avoid it. Um, they had rooms up and down the panhandle. You know, They had rooms from, from Beaumont, Texas, all the way to Jacksonville. So you got a club owner that's vouching for you. Hey, he does a good job in Tallahassee. Maybe you should work him in Jacksonville. Jacksonville goes, yeah, we'll tell Orlando. Orlando tells Tampa. Tampa tells Biloxi. And the next thing you know, 
you've got enough little bit of steady work and little one-nighters and you can string together all right well if i'm only working charlotte on tuesday and raleigh durham on friday i can find a tuesday wednesday somewhere right right to just do five minutes rather than take the Greyhound all the way back. Because mind you, this entire time, my mom doesn't know. Me and my mom aren't on speaking terms. Okay. so Because she's furious. Right. Oh, yeah. But rightfully so. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. hey, listen, screw school. I think I'm going to try these jokes. Yeah. <laughs> See how that goes. Yeah, that's that goes good with college professors, too, I'm sure. It's, uh, so so you're, you're, you're banging out. You're doing your, your work. Now, when do you get your first break? Was it Montreal or how did, how did, I mean, I know you went to Montreal Fresh Faces, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, when was your first, would you say your first break back then? I'd, I'd have to say Montreal. So how did that come about? How did, were you, were you now featuring on the road or were you headlining on the road? I was featuring. And so then you had an audition for Montreal. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, um, I think, I think that was, well, I, Montreal did a lot for me. Granted, I came in after they stopped handing out six-digit checks to comedians. So, you know, they're the, the land of the development deal. You know, for the people who don't know, Montreal is basically like the NFL combine for new comedians where agents and TV networks, they all go to see who the new guys are, who the new who are the new faces we should know. And if they like you back in the 90s, they would give you a check for, you know, quarter million, half a million. Go, we like you, want to build a show with you. Uh, what do you say you work with us and you sign with ABC and then you spend the rest of the time I don't know I guess banging Canadian hookers or something um, the rest of the time in Montreal for the festival now, right when you were with ABC you're banging Canadian hookers so, so um, Montreal does Montreal goes well yeah Montreal went really well for me um, and the booker for the Letterman show Eddie Brill was there and and at the time I was getting courted by an agency who I could see. You know, it was still kind of on the bubble. And I'm not sure. You know, a lot of agencies wait to see whether or not you stick to the wall at all. So I left Montreal with a Letterman credit and, and an agent. Now, how was it doing Letterman? That was exciting. That was still probably one of the most scared, excited. And I'm an adrenaline junkie. And it's it's up Letterman and Def Jam are probably the two credits that I have where there was just childlike there's the boogeyman under my bed level nervousness and excitement on the top of a roller coaster at the same time because you want to get it right. It's Letterman. You do right. not want to screw this up. Um I think the I think Letterman I think Montreal was the best thing for my career. Um, if I could rewind a couple years back to like oh two oh three, um, I'd have to say that being on Bob and Tom and working the Bob and Tom syndicated radio show, that was the best thing for my career then because that got me to that next mile marker. And those guys, Bob and Tom, they're like. Um, I don't even know. When it's not fair to compare them to any other syndicated morning show, but you know, four million listeners—they connect with Middle America, and the Bob and Tom stamp of approval in certain markets with comedy clubs is worth more than the Letterman credit. I still say that to this day, and it's not a knock on what David Letterman is and what that show represents for comedy. Everyone knows that's the pinnacle, 
but to the average Midwestern family making a decision on whether or not to go spend $12 on a Friday night to see you at Nuck and Bucks Comedy Club, the Bob and Tom show they listen to every morning. They may or may not catch Letterman. So if they've heard you on Bob and Tom, they're more likely to come see you. So if they're more likely to come see you, the club is more likely to come book you. I did Bob and Tom for the first time, and I had five emails before the sunset from club owners wanting me to come work their market. Really? That didn't happen with Montreal. That didn't happen with Premium Blend on Comedy Central. That didn't happen with Craig Ferguson. That didn't happen with Letterman and Conan. So at the, you, got, you also got to understand what my need was at the time. Back in 2004, your need is to make more money in the markets that you're already working. And you can only do that with credits or being so hilarious through repetition. And at that point, people were starting to MySpace a little bit. And I was trying to get into the social media marketing. But that Bob and Tom credit essentially doubled my pay and doubled the range the radius of I, I called it the radius of work and each year I tried to extend my radius of work from Birmingham by an hour that was always my goal I graduated from school I went back home in 2001 and was just a road comic and doing morning radio and then so at that point I had a radius of work that was probably six to seven hours from from the crib and and it's like anything else. The further you get from center, the less you're making because you're going further to prove you, you're proving yourself in right. your market. So you're taking a loss. But Nashville, Chattanooga, all that stuff that's essentially close to ground zero. I'm making top dollars a feature, which in those days was anywhere from five to seven hundred dollars for the week. And some clubs may pay you nine hundred to headline on an off week because you're you're a newbie or whatever. But you want those nine hundred dollar clubs to start paying you a thousand. Right, yeah. You want those $1,000 clubs to start paying you 1200 which is insane. That's insane money to make for three days in those days. Like, in those days at those times for the credits I had to just, like, in the back of my head, like, just keep in mind, I'm coming from having worked for $200 for six days, and you're telling me you're going to give me 1000 for three? Right. So I would go to these clubs, and and with being on Bob and Tom, it opened up all of these other rooms that were working me, especially as a black comic, because as a black comic coming out of the comic view, the wake of the comic view, um, comic view changed white America's perception of black comedians. And it was, it wasn't for the good. It was, a, it, there was a perception and a stench that I still think it's starting to wear off, but there was a perception that if you were a black comic, then somehow all you do is talk about, Def Jam or comic view type topics and I wasn't that guy and you know there's a market for that and there's people who flourish talking about oh baby mama oh child support oh um, credit so bad somebody so ugly I ain't got no gas money and oh I'm a I'm a hump the stool in the middle of my joke that's just funny and it works but black people ain't and this is something I identify black people black people 12 percent of the country so we ain't everywhere and i got bills to pay i want to tell more jokes i want to grow so that means i have to go to missouri i have to go to a lot of places where there aren't any black people and try to make money so in order to convince some white club owner that i'm not that guy a credit like bob and tom is amazing right it is it's amazing and then when you put letterman on top of that i was good I was good because because before that, all I had was Apollo, three years of Comic View, 
and Comedy Central's premium blend. And premium blend ain't enough to offset right all of those black credits. It's still, well, maybe he went on Comedy Central and just did his black stuff. But once you do Bob and Tom, once you do Letterman, then you know, you're good at that point. And those I I'd say those are the two things that really that really changed my career. Like when I think of things that boost you from one plateau to the next, Bob and Tom for sure. And definitely the whole Letterman getting an agent thing. So you're doing that. Trip. You're doing Letterman. You're doing Bob and Tom. Your money's going up. How, okay, because we have about 15 minutes left. I want to talk about Sullivan and Son. How did that come about? Because, I mean, you're, you're on the road. Now, at the time, I know I saw your credits. You know, you rewrote for Last Comic Standing, I believe. Yeah, wrote- well, I was, I was just, I performed on Last Comic. They just put you down as a writer because okay. you wrote your own material or whatever. So you're, now, did you ever think you would end up in acting? I mean, you, you, just, you just wanted to be a comic. Was that your thing? I want to be a comic. I want to do this. Chris Rock has a great quote that I wish I'd have said. Um, I think it was in Rolling Stone some years ago. Chris Rock said everything that he does is to bring more people to a stand-up. Okay. So that's just how I look at it. Even now, that's still how I look at it. You know, I'm, I don't think I'll ever be the guy that transitions into some Jamie Foxx-level transformative stand-up to amazing thespian Eddie Murphy-ass process. Like, I'm just... I don't, I don't, when I look inside myself, I don't see the fire for that, but I love comedy. I love comedic acting and it's fun. It pays well. I get to work with my friends and it's something that I can easily use to roll into other projects that I, that I would want to do myself because that's, to me, that's been the most beneficial thing about being a part of Sullivan and Son, which is my first scripted show. This is the first thing that right, I was looking at your on. credits. It's like self, there's a shitload on IMDb, but the, yeah. I was telling her that just like actor, it's like mixture of arts, whatever, not some, and then it's like, and Sullivan, yeah. a lot of times you'll see like little parts. Well, no, now did you know Steve and all those guys from the road or were you familiar with each other? You know what? I knew Steve professionally from the road and I'd seen him met around locally. Owen, I'd never met. I'd probably say I'd seen maybe three or four minutes of his comedy. I just was just unaware of him, you know, and you know, comics, you live in your own bubble and you know, your guys and it's just, he's just a guy I just never ran into in LA. So I just never knew him. Uh, and so Steve writes the script, you know, and I guess he got together with uh, Vince Vaughn and Peter Billingsley who, um, you know, helped him, you know, put the script together and all the executive production. And Steve says, all right, well, I'm writing this role with you in mind. I'm writing a couple of roles with, you know, a couple of the guys in mind. And that doesn't mean anything right. to me. Like, and, and Steve has always been a great guy, and I've always enjoyed his style of comedy and his style of thinking. So we worked well in terms of trying to write together for stand-up beforehand. But, hey, I'm writing this with you in mind. All right, Steve, whatever, dude. Like, we're, we're talking about the same city that wouldn't let Lewis Black play himself on his own sitcom. Right. Well, that's that's uh, it's funny. It's like with uh, John Manfrotti was on. He was on Men of a Certain Age, mm-hmm. and the character is written called Manfro, and they tell Ray Romano, who's getting off. Everyone loves Raymond, so you know he's got clout. They go, oh well, he's got to read, and he's like, we wrote this part for him, and then they say, oh, he looks a little too much like Scott Bakula, so he's got to wear a hat. And it's like, he looks nothing. I mean, it's yeah. weird. And that's Ray Romano, who basically just had 10 years of, you know, an Emmy winning yeah. show. So imagine Steve Byrne going into TBS and going, these are my guys. Right. My, which he didn't, which from what, I, mean, I don't know whether Steve did that or not. What I do know is that he wrote the role with me and mine and I went in and auditioned. And I don't, I can't speak for Owen Benjamin, Benjamin and Ahmed Ahmed, 
but I know I was sitting in the lobby with some damn heavy hitters. Like who were some of the guys? I I would I wouldn't I wouldn't want to disrespect okay. them by naming them because I wouldn't you know I don't yeah. know now, the politics of that. Had you been auditioning for other stuff before that? Oh hell yeah! So, I'd auditioned for three years. Three years I'd been out here. Um, I moved to LA in '07, and you know I did the whole audition thing for about three four years, and then I moved back home to Birmingham for a year and a half to host the morning show that I'd originally started on as okay. an intern. You know, I was trying to Steve Harvey it, you know, and, you know, host this, still do stand-up, syndicate it and grow it and all that. And that all blew up in my face. So I was right back in L.A. with my ass, with my ass handed to me. And that's when I got the audition for Sullivan and Son. And we do the show. I do the audition and I get another call back. And I go, huh, all right. And I audition again. I get another call back. And this is like when you go back the third time at that point. You're like in front of producers and a bunch of people who won't make eye contact with you because, you know, they're trying to discern you from all of the other actors to decide who's the right positively the right person for the role. And I mean, these were people like the the people that I was going in auditioning that, that were also auditioning. Like, these were people that I was a fan of. Like these are people like that are on DVDs and on files on my iPod right now. I could watch his movie right now. Right. So I didn't think anything of it. And that's the one thing about stand-up is that it gears you to accept rejection and to not take it personally. And you know, I was happy that Steve even wrote a character named Roy. I was like, that's cool, man. Like that's, you know, that's a noble thing. It's not something you see in this town often. And lo and behold, I get the call from the studio that I get the part. Now, what is your reaction? I mean, you, know, you said that Letterman, you had the uh, euphoria and the scariness. Are you sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm I'm on TV. I mean, this is, and I think in the way, way your mind thinks, because you work, you do stand up. You're probably also thinking, man, my price is going to go up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I just got TV. I got a series. My price. They can call and say, and now it's, it's a credit where it says from TBS yeah, to celebrate. That's thing. that's a gift. There's a gift and a curse to that, though, as a comic. Um, but the the initial reaction was fear. I was I was happy, but it was like I cannot screw this up. Right. Like you literally finally get a chance to do something, and it's how can I not screw this up? How can I make this better? How can I capitalize on this? All right, I'm casting a pilot. The pilot might not go. So what can I do in the meantime? We may shoot the pilot, and then the network goes. He can't act. Let's recast him. That happens all the time in TV shows. Right. You get cast in a role, and then they um, – I was I can't remember who I was listening to the other day. They were talking about how um, Ray Romano got fired from news radio on NBC after the pilot, and they replaced him with Joe Rogan. It's, now, that, granted, it still worked out for Ray yeah, Romano but, just fine. But such different characters, too. But he, he had the, the steak in his hand. He sliced it. He poured the steak sauce on it, and just as he was about to put it up to his lips, they snatched it away from him. That happened to Seinfeld. He got fired off Benson. There you go. I mean, so you, and then he goes on to this major, you know, Seinfeld. And yeah, it's crazy. And so that thought process that someone could snatch this bacon away from me at any moment sits more prevalent in my mind than enjoying it, and that probably keeps me from connecting emotionally with a lot that I do because my brain is always what's the next thing what's the next thing how do we capitalize how do we move? and you know two three days a year I'll sit back and kind of pat myself on the back but you know yeah there, it's 
it's ultimately how can I make this how can I make this help my comedy? How can I make this help other projects I may want to do? Like I can't just go, yay, I'm on a TV show, cancel all my gigs. I have enough money now to pay my bills and live comfortably in LA and just sit on Craigslist all day and chase strange women. Hey, right. No, I want to work more now. This is why I bust my ass. This is why I was sleeping in a bus station in South Carolina on off nights well, so that I could get this opportunity. And I'm not dumb. I know the percentages of shows that actually make it to the air. And then you couple with that the percentage of those shows that have a black actor. Like, that's that's easily upper three percentile in terms of comedians just to be a comic on a show that's on the air it ain't 1992 no more right they don't have to come to us if they want funny they can go to those improv boys they can go get somebody off snl and they're just as funny they're damn good they can go get a charlie sheen charlie sheen ain't gonna stand up but he had a sitcom on it what was he on two and a half for almost 10 seasons right eight nine seasons before the blow up so the networks figured out real fast when they stopped giving out development deals in Montreal, they figured out real fast. Once the office and 30 Rock and stuff like that, once that stuff started happening, we don't have to have a comedian at the front of this to make this work. There's a couple shows that do, you know, Community, uh, The League. You know, I think those are shows that are real comedy heavy on the front end. Parks and Rec has a lot of comics running around it as well, but it's not necessarily... It's not like Raymond Seinfeld or King right. of Queens. Like it's it's not based on just you know the I even like Tim Allen back in the day, Home Improvement, and all that. It was it was it was based on their act a lot of them, but now they're like we don't exactly. need to base it on the so act. you look at a show like Sullivan and Son where Steve Byrne is the star. It is his show. It is centered around his character. He is a stand up, and then there's three more people on the show that are stand up com- legitimate right. touring stand up comedians. There's not another show like that on the dial. Now has it changed so your life? With people like recognize you and stuff like that, like do you? I mean, because you're you got picked up for what? It was the third or fourth season? Uh, third season's coming up in 2014, we're, which must be great. Must get be excited for you guys. Yeah, I'm excited because we're going from ten episodes to thirteen, so it, okay. it gives the writers a little more wiggle room to really, you know, tell stories the way they want to, and, and we, not we, have to stress fitting everything into. We were the taping when you had the heart attack. Oh we, yes, we went, to, we went to that taping, and we're like, <laughs> and we're watching it, and it was cool because we're shooting here and here, and and, and it's funny because we thought that was going to air right away, and it aired like we kept going checking. I'd say I call her, I go, hey, I checked, it's not on because Gary said he gave us a script and it said like yeah. four, so we thought okay, we're gonna see it the next week, and then it kept, and finally it was like went towards the end. No, they just shoot them all and then decide where to drop them in after the fact. Um, yeah, it's it's. I get recognized here and there, but you know I don't consider myself a star. I don't think I ever will, man. I it, I'm just a dude telling jokes. That's just my job. My job just has me on TV a little bit more than you. It doesn't make me better than you. It doesn't, you know. And if people want to take pictures, you know, that's fine. I'm approachable. You know, I I've had the same phone number since like my junior year of college. I, I just I'm just a dude working, you know, and there's guys like, you know, they recognize Steve a lot more because, you know, he's more of a principal on the show than I am. But, you know, I get recognized here and there and it's cool and it's all love. What's it? It's a fun show. I mean, it's one of those things. And it is true. It has comics. So that's always gives other comics that they go, okay, this can happen because you're right. It has a cast of all comics. And then, of course, you're working with uh, Dan Laurie, who's just like legendary. Oh, great, man. Wonder Years, all that. Brian Doyle Murray, Christine Ebersole. You know, I think a lot of what I try to do. You know, because 
you know, I'm from a I'm from a part. I call it the parts they disregard. You know, I'm I'm from the South. They're not L.A. and New York. They're not checking for talent in the South. You know, they're not checking in the Midwest. You know, if you're there and you're good, you got to get out. You got to, you know, get as good as you can there and then hit one of the coasts to try and grow a little bit more. But, you know, for me, it's always been, you know, this journey of being on television and doing more is to hopefully show comics that are doing what I'm doing now or doing what I did, you know, busting it or, you know, nine hours to go get 15 minutes and $20 that there is more beyond that because, you know, you, you know, you, it's, I don't know what, I can't speak to what comics on the coast go through when they're starting out, you know, their first five to seven years, but it's a lot of despair in middle America as a comic because it's just, not only are you struggling more and less stage time, but you're in an area where no one's checking for you. You're not even sure where the hell this leads to, where this goes. We have a few minutes left. Um, give people your info. What's uh, the website, all that stuff? My name is Roy Wood Jr. R-O-Y-W-O-O-D-J-R. That is literally everything that you can find me. So you got lucky you got that. Because, I mean, it's like so many times. Roy Wood is a common name. Like, Wood's a common last name. You're, and I know it's Junior, but you're lucky you got a list. I, no I S, just Wood Junior. Roy Wood Junior. You got lucky. At Twitter, at Instagram, Facebook.com, MySpace, all of it. Roy Wood Junior. Before we go, I want to ask you, how was the Sullivan and Son comedy tour? Was that a blast? No, that was guys? a blast. Like, that was fun. Oh, I, I, that was I fun. I saw all these pictures, you guys. There are all these games. Just checking Dude. it out with the jerseys. Oh, we went to so many baseball games. We saw a Stanley Cup final. And I'd never been to a hockey game before. That was a blast. That's the other thing that's so great about the show is that we're able to go out and tour and actually meet the fans of the show and interact with the people. And that's something a lot of shows can't do. I don't care how much you love Breaking Bad. Brian Cranston ain't coming to Bucking Nuck's Comedy Club to right. <laughs> do 45 minutes for you. I am. And that's been that's probably been the most exciting thing about the whole experience of the show is doing the show, then going out on tour immediately while the show is on the air and meeting fans of the show and promoting it and all of that stuff. And How did it work? Because you you, all you guys are headliners and there's only so much time a comedy show. Do you guys do 20-minute sets or how's that work? Eh, we all do 15 to 20 and then Steve goes up and does 25 and that's the show. And it's pretty, um, it's 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 been working just fine. Like, I think myself, Ahmed, and Owen all do 20, and then Steve just does however long he wants to. And it's such a it's such a departure from the norm because, you know, comedy is such a solitary life. So to be on the road for three months with the guys that I actually am friends with and actually, you know, like, it's, you know, it's a great thing. The only tour I'd done before that was the one with Last Comic Standing with NBC, which was which was itself a good tour, but the it was a longer tour. But the 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 dynamic of personalities between all of the comedians on the tour was way different because we were all different guys. It was myself, Tommy Jonigan, Felipe Esparza, Mike Kaplan, and the late Mike DiStefano. And plus, we went out on tour literally two days after the finale. So there was a lot of saltiness on the bus because you just lost. Right, right. <laughs> Felipe's got a quarter million dollars, and he's just sitting there. Ch- like, I don't. 
Yeah, it's 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 a little. You're like, wait, you're, you're glad you wanna, for him, but you're like, I wish I had. Yeah, that money. I'm happy for him, but I need a second to lick my wounds, and right. now you're telling me I got to share a tour bus. <laughs> so th- there was that little bit of weirdness for the first couple of days, but it definitely was it, it was it was a good it was a good situation well i want to thank you for coming on roy um this was, was fun man yeah, I, this is fun i appreciate I, it i you know it's good i always love people with good comedy stories and check out his website check out sullivan and son i actually have a sullivan t-shirt sullivan son t-shirt which is a very cool looking shirt i must admit and uh people follow me at twitter at cooper talk also i have about 175 episodes up on uh coopertalk.net also, Facebook, go to Cooper Talk. That's my fan page. You can click on a photograph and it will go straight to the episode. Email me, Cooper at Indy100. Um, like, tell you, like to hear what you're thinking. And also, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll find out that usually on Thursday nights at uh, midnight our time, 3 o'clock in the morning, East Coast time, I call into the Big Daddy Graham uh, show on Sports Radio 94 WIP Philadelphia. So check it out. Follow me at Twitter. You guys are great. I want to thank Roy Wood. Check him out, please. And uh, yeah, be healthy. Drink your water. Eat your vitamins. And take your vegetables. I said that wrong. Have a good day.